I wanted the full picture of mm-hmm. what the church was now and where did it come from? Because the most common excuse that I always grew up hearing, because this is what members tell each other the whole all the time, is whenever there are uncomfortable things in the church history, we would say, the doctrine is perfect. It's the culture that's imperfect. It's the people that are imperfect. But God's doctrine is perfect. And that was the most common excuse to not delve into anything further. Welcome to the Babel Podcast. I'm your host, Paige Brees, and I am so happy to have you here for some raw and real conversation. People say you should never discuss politics, money, or religion. Well, not here. This is a safe space to dive deep into how religion as a whole has affected our hearts, our minds, and our world. (laughs) The good, the bad, and the ugly. We all have a seat at the table, and I invite you to sit with me as I talk with religious leaders, experts, and friends alike. So, without further ado, let's babble. All righty. Well, thank you so much for being here with me today, Kelsey. Um, For those of you who don't know, Kelsey Slay Roberts uh, is an incredible human being. She and I met all the way back in school. I think it was elementary school, wasn't it? Yeah, we grew up, I think, in like the same neighborhood for years. (laughs) Years and years. Absolutely crazy. Kelsey is an incredible artist. Um, if you go follow her Instagram, her artwork is phenomenal. She's an incredible portrait artist. And um, she's also a mother to an adorable little small human. And he's the cutest. Uh, and she also uh, grew up in the Mormon church and eventually found her way out of that. Um, and we are going to talk about that today. So Kelsey, welcome to the Babel podcast. So excited to have you. Um, Just tell us a little bit about yourself and then, yeah, just about your journey through growing up in the Mormon church and kind of how you came to deciding to eventually leave, um, leave that faith and what that, what what that meant for you. Yeah, of course. Um, So I was born into it. The Mormon church is a very generational church. a lot of there's a there's a bit of like a hierarchy of generational um i just i don't know you're cooler if you've been like multi-generational mormons i guess okay there's like a a legacy element to it yeah and so when you're a member you kind of get clout telling like how far back your family um joined the church so i guess i'll start there yeah Um, my grandparents both on both sides converted um, so decades ago, and then both my parents were born into the church, raised, still members. Um, and then, so then I was born into the church and that was just my entire culture and my entire religion and didn't really know anything else. Um, and all the benchmarks of adolescence were from the church. Um, so there's a lot of like, um, coming of age benchmarks that other people have had outside mm-hmm. of a Mormon context that I can't even relate with because all of my coming of age experiences were from a very specific church experience. Um, and then 
I was very committed with that religion, especially in high school is kind of where I felt like I found my true testimony about it. And I was like 110% in all of it, the identity of the culture, um, the history, like I loved everything about it. And I was a weird Mormon kid, <laughs> even amongst my member peers, because I was so like, this is the truth. This is the faith. Um, just so believing in it and missionary work, sharing about it, that kind of stuff. Then mm-hmm. um, went to a Mormon owned university. So like BYU mm-hmm. um, has two other campuses. So I went to their campus in Idaho, Brigham Young University, Idaho. And um, a lot of the, the depth of the culture is kind of in Utah and Idaho. Mm-hmm. And so actually being in Idaho where everyone was a Mormon, like everyone was a Mormon. That's kind of where I think my more authentic self started coming out because um, when you're in like the bubble of it culturally, there's a lot less nuance. So it becomes very homogenized and that became very toxic. Mm. And so the toxicity of the culture became much more apparent and I was starting to feel resistant to that while I was there. But um, still, like, believed in the, the church and the religion and all of that. And then um, I met my husband. I was about 19, and he went and served his two-year Mormon mission, which is pretty standard for all men. Um, and so I waited for him during his two-year mission. We wrote via letters. I was very committed to him. And then when he got back two years later, we got married five months after that. And um, and then we will have our four-year anniversary here in a couple months. Yay! But congratulations. Thanks. <laughs> together, and I left the church um, back around like last October of 2020. Okay. So about three years together, and then both of us stepped aside. Um, and um, any like I guess questions about that so far? Do you want to like transition into? <laughs> yeah. No. What- I would just love to know what that process of like, what, what was the turning point for you two? you know, what, what was kind of the thing that the straw that broke the camel's back, I guess, that made you both realize or decide that this was not for you. For sure. Um, so when we got married, uh, I was 21. He was, yeah, we were both 21, mm-hmm. um, which was still very young. Uh, possibly too young still. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, we had a lot of conflict with his family, um, a lot of family issues with my in-laws. Um, and uh, about a year and a half into our marriage, we got pregnant with his son. Mm-hmm. And um, just just issues and conflict with my in-laws kept getting worse. Mm-hmm. Um, and so around the time that we were pregnant, um, we were having like interpersonal conflict, um, especially with residual effects from his family and like family origin issues. And, um, so we decided to go into therapy because we were having a child. And so we were like, we need to get yeah. issues fixed. 
Absolutely. You don't need to be passing on your traumas or your unresolved issues to your children. I, th- I think that's and very, so- very wise of you to do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. And so we went into therapy and um, we went to like LDS counselors first. So the LDS church has their own counseling center um, called LDS Family Services. So we went into there first and we didn't have a very good experience there. And so then we tried a LDS therapist, a licensed therapist, but who was LDS himself. Hmm. And um, and we just felt even more gaslit about our experiences because he kept trying to counsel us with an LDS doctrinal base and kept putting religious um, themes into our into our therapy, which wasn't helping us because the issues we were having were with family. Mm-hmm. And the number one doctrine of the faith is families are forever, mm-hmm. like forever. We're with this family forever. And so we just kept being told, like, we could have boundaries with family um, that, you know, like, you just can't cut family out. You just kind of have to figure out how to deal with it. You mm-hmm. can't um, impede on relationships between his parents and, like, our son. And we just had a lot of concerns because of what we knew about his family. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we left that situation just feeling very gaslit and very unheard. And it wasn't until um, a few months later, we discovered um, narcissism mm-hmm. off of YouTube. So like narcissistic personality disorder. Um, and I found a therapist on YouTube who was making a whole bunch of videos talking about narcissistic families and narcissistic parents and narcissistic relationships. and And she ended up living 15 minutes away from us in Arizona. So we got in to see her, which was just like crazy coincidence. And she worked with us for a year where we identified like a lot of our issues with that family of origin was for narcissistic patterns. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because of that, we learned healthy family dynamics. Um, we like got to work on some things in our marriage and, and um, we learned like what abuse looks like and how abusers think and all the various forms of abuse and how they look like. And um, what healthy parenting is and conditional versus unconditional love, those types of things. And so the real catalyst for that was when we learned what healthy social dynamics are. We, um, and we ended up having to go no contact with his family. Um, mm-hmm. we ended up having to set a lot of boundaries with extended family. And that was a whole like situation. Sure. Um, just like very long story. But, um, the specific turning point was uh, back last fall. I was reading um, the five love languages of children. So like how to identify your child's love language and, and meet their needs per love language. So I was reading that. And in the beginning of the book, the author defines unconditional love as the standard that all healthy parents use when meeting their children's love language. And that conditional love is what um, breeds like the dysfunctional attachment styles and and conditional love is what is shown in abusive parent-child relationships, so like emotional abuse. Mm-hmm. And it just so happens that our current prophet of the church gave an Enzyme article where he wrote in, uh, sorry, the Enzyme is um, the adult magazine that comes mm-hmm. out every month. So it just has like messages and articles that leaders of the church write. And mm-hmm. The adults get to study from it and a lot of our church lessons are modeled after it 
Um, and so our current prophet back in 2003 wrote a piece called Divine Love. And he talked about how the um, unconditional love is never found in the Bible. And God only uses conditional love. And Christ only uses conditional love. Like very explicitly, he says, God only uses conditional love. And I was like, oh, that's abusive. Mm. That is dysfunctional attachment. That is dangerous rhetoric for parents to be reading that God uses conditional love. So let me use conditional love on my children. And um, that was the turning point. And I was like, that's really not good. (laughs) And so from there on, um, I studied how um, relationships are modeled in the church or were instructed to be modeled and how we viewed um, our relationship with God, like how that was taught to us. And like, um, and you know, like our therapist and, and part of like over like working through abusive family of origin issues. Um, we learned about something called the fog, which is fear, obligation, and guilt. And she had taught us like, you know, way back when about how you can use the fog acronym to kind of like gauge how healthy a relationship was for you. So if you were in a relationship or doing things in that relationship out of fear, obligation, and guilt, that wasn't a healthy dynamic and it, it wasn't good for you. And so I categorized all the things in my religion that I was doing out of fear, obligation, and guilt. Mm. And pretty much everything <laughs> categorized some way out of fear, obligation, and guilt. And I made like a whole spreadsheet about it and you know, like the law of tithing and the law of consecration and um the garment wearing and the temple attending and um we have a lot of we have a lot of like covenants and laws that we live so pretty much all of it like was out of fear obligation and guilt and so that's when that was the big push for us and then everything after that just kind of one domino after another yeah absolutely no that makes complete sense and I I have a similar story. Um, I'm not married and I don't have a, a child, but in my own journey with therapy, um, you know, I came to, plus my relationship that I have, he's never been a religious person himself, but he kind mm-hmm. of never in a malicious way, but he would bring up certain topics or ask me questions that I'd never been asked before that made me really consider long and hard along with what I was learning in therapy with my therapist and kind of digging deep, um, you know, that there are some very narcissistic tendencies throughout the church. Um, there are some very, um, you know, very abusive language used in the church, um, in order to get you to think a certain way or to believe a certain thing. Um, simply not necessarily for the good of you, but for the good of the continuation of the teachings that they're putting out there. Um, and so I totally hear what, hear what you say when you say that, you know, things that, especially the fog, I love, I love that. What, what are you doing out of fear, obligation, or guilt? You know, most things (laughs) you feel like, you know, most things with the church. Yeah. Or very yeah, much done. And, and that, like your obligation and guilt was modeled to me as love mm-hmm. by the church. Mm-hmm. And told my whole those things that that was love. That if I was doing something out of obligation, that was because I loved God. If I was doing it out of fear, that was love. That's not love. That's not healthy love. 
Um, but that's exactly what an abuser would tell a victim, right? Is you're going to do these things or else you don't show me you love me. But the motivation is out of fear, obligation, or guilt. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, I think that's very powerful. Um, and I think that a lot of, well, I think most people who are um, currently in a religion or are currently struggling with a religion and are unable to put words as to why they're struggling, that's the reason why. Um, so I, I think that's very powerful. What, I mean, I, I know that with anything or when it comes to religion, making a decision like that does not come easy. Right. Um, and I know that it comes with a lot of repercussions. Um, would you be willing to kind of talk that, talk about that and what that meant for you specifically, um, your, your mental process through, you know, once you've made that choice, what comes next? Oh yeah, <laughs> for sure. Um, so I guess to like preface, I personally don't consider um, Mormonism like as belonging with mainstream Christianity. Mm-hmm. I think that it's its own, its own beast entirely. Yeah, there's a lot of things that. You know, so like on TikTok, there's a whole side of ex-Mormon TikTok, and yeah. there's also like ex-fundamentals and and ex-evangelicals um, and ex-Christians who like share their religious trauma experiences mm-hmm. there. And there there are some things that I can relate to with them, but there's a lot of things that I can't relate with other Christians about their experiences growing up. Mm-hmm. And um, so, but I would consider like that the Mormon church, the fact that it's a very high demand, it's very involving, is kind of very similar to like evangelical sex or like really orthodox fundamentalism. Um, that's kind of the same like demand and level of indoctrination that we experience when we're Mormons. Mm-hmm. So, um, so it's a very, very high demand I would possibly call it a cult, but I know a lot of people don't. And it just kind of depends on like what you want to define a cult as or how you view it. <laughs> um, but it's very, um, there's a lot of brainwashing. There's a lot of indoctrination, especially when you're young. Um, and it's very involving. So there, there is no such thing as being like a, a, a Christmas or Easter Mormon. You are dedicated and you're 100% in or you don't and you fit and you're left on the outskirts. And it's an all or nothing mentality. And um, it's a whole identity too. And they have their own specific culture. And so to be outside of that culture is very difficult because Mm. I feel like an alien. There's a lot of things that I can't relate to with just like normal people. Um, So... When somebody decides to leave, they risk um, losing their family. They risk sometimes losing their employment if they are employed in any position by the church. So if they teach at universities, if they're seminary teachers that are on payroll, um, if they work in the PR area of the church, if they work in the bookstores of the church or any type of PR production of the church, um, you can lose your, your job. You can lose your social reputation. Um, and a lot of your friends as well. It's, it's very difficult. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So I knew that those were all risks that I was going to assume if I were to go public with my social circle and say that we were leaving the church. And some of those things did happen. Um, Yes, some of those things, I have lost friends. I have lost some reputation in my Mormon community. Um, I've had about 100 people unfriend me on Facebook (laughs) in the last few weeks Mm -hmm. since I went very public with people online about leaving the church and, you know, like you saw my Facebook and Instagram stories. <laughs> yeah. And, um, I've had some people, you know, DM me and kind of like criticize me and tell me like that there was no good for what I was doing. And I was bashing the religion. Um, um, sorry, feel free to like jump in with a clarifying question. Cause I think, no, no, you're, <laughs> <laughs> you're fine. I'm just, I just am enjoying hearing your hearing your story, but I mean, I guess, yeah, the question that pop comes to mind is, um, like who was criticizing you? Were they older people in the church? Were they people your own age? Were they leaders? Like who, who were coming to you with those kind of criticism? Um, I, I met a lot of people in my time in BYUI. So there's a lot of college people that, um, I had been in classes with or been in wards so like going to church with them in our mm-hmm. little mini communities um so I had a lot of those types of people um reach out and and give their opinions about it a lot of men actually way more men than women mm-hmm. interesting <laughs> well I think it's a very patriarchal church Extremely yeah is patriarchal we have a we even we call it patriarchs and mm-hmm. uh, the the priesthood only belongs to patriarchal positions of authority. So mm. it's a very, very male-dominated, male-led space. So yeah, mostly men would uh, DM me and say like, hey, stop this. I was like, mm. no. <laughs> no, thank you. Thank you. I'm not going to stop it. <laughs> I don't have to listen to men anymore. <laughs> um, you're not my spiritual authorities anymore. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I did have some conversations with family members and like grandparents and Mm-hmm. I did have a grandmother unfriend me, and I have had old um, youth leaders. A lot of youth leaders would unfriend, and some of them would reach out and say, you know, like, oh, what you're doing makes me very uncomfortable. This is really sad to see. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, well, I was really uncomfortable with the things I saw in the church, too. So why yeah. is your discomfort more morally superior than mine? Right. And, and make those types of points or conversations um yeah generally like don't really lean anywhere um yeah of course the um, is to protect the church first that is the mm-hmm. reaction is to always protect the organization um mm-hmm. yeah but um the like the fallout though what that led to was a lot of existential crisis mm-hmm. um, a lot more therapy especially for me as a woman leaving the church yeah. Um, I ended up having to get my own psychologist who was an ex-Mormon himself because there is a really big void in mental health where people have, we're just like licensed therapists and psychologists don't always have the tools to specify with really high demand organizations like Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormonism, um, polygamous relig- or polygamous religions, much more cult-like organizations than just like I don't know whatever else um yeah <laughs> and and because we have our own specific cultures 
it was really hard to feel like I had to inform my therapist just so that they could help counsel me. Um, but issues around motherhood, issues around sexuality, issues around um, where my place was as a woman, issues around how to be comfortable with discomfort, things around death. Because um, those were all things that I had purpose and answers for in the system. And without the system, I realized how um, infantilized I was and how brainwashed I had been mm-hmm. and a lot of identity crisis. So those were like big areas that I had to work through. Yeah. It was very painful. No, <laughs> very absolutely. Painful. And I, I mean, I respect you so much. Um, and yeah. I, I, I really do because, I mean, I've always respected you as a human just from knowing you from school. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, growing up with you, you were always on the outside. You seemed like this, you know, happy, very gentle, soft soul. And yeah, and and absolutely. And I never doubted that that was who you are as a human. I think you still are that person. And and I think you have a beautiful heart. But yeah, when I saw your first post about leaving the church, Mm -hmm. I, my heart immediately went out to you because I don't know everything about the Mormon church, obviously, but what I do know of it, I, I know that it's hard to leave something like that. And, and I knew that there, there would be fallout for you. Um, I didn't know what all that would entail, obviously, until we just talked about it now, but yeah, yeah I, I think that you are such a strong human. And I think that you are going to be such a prominent example to people of how you can make that choice. and have it be for your betterment, even though it's really hard. Um, and I, I think that the, you know, your, your story is really going to impact people. And I think it really is. So I'm, I'm really glad that you're so open with, (laughs) yeah, I just, I'm, I'm so happy that you're so open to sharing. Um, because it's, I know it can be hard to continually bring those things up and, and admit that you went through this, really, really rough road. Um, Thank you. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I don't know. I just feel like I can't not do it, you know? (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. Because, yeah, you know, you can't say, that's why I made this podcast. You know, we can't not talk about religion anymore. It, It has to be something we discuss because too many people say, oh yeah, you know, I'm a Mormon and it's cool. Mm-hmm. And they move on or they say, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian and I've always been a Christian and that's how it is. And we don't need to talk about it. But but we do like there there are things within each religion, like brainwashing, like culture, like narcissism, that mm-hmm. not enough people will actually bring themselves to discuss and come to understand fully how it's affecting them. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's a waste. Um so yeah, that's very easy to excuse the toxicity and religion by using it as it's oh it's my religion you can't right. criticize my religion and I don't think that that's fair no I agree I completely agree um so you are very um you're very open on social media on Facebook and Instagram about the Mormon church and ways that it is toxic mm-hmm. and so I guess did you know these things before you decided to make, make it public that you were leaving the church or did that choice kind of help you dive into learning more of these things about the church? 
a little bit of both. I didn't know everything. Um, but whenever I had that catalyst moment of this isn't necessarily healthy, um, and I need to step back and kind of reevaluate what that means for me and especially having a child and, mm-hmm. you know, cause he was, he was young. So he has the rest of his life that I have to dictate. Do I raise him with this type of rhetoric? Um, so from there, I started learning about the historicity of the Book of Mormon. I started learning about racism in the history of the church and presently as well. It's not gone. Um, mm-hmm. I started learning about LGBTQ issues and what the church has always taught about, um, you know, because yes, the 2021 church, the Mormon church is much more palatable than like the 1987 version or the 1880 version. It changes sure. in time. Um, yeah. But like, and, and then of course, like how women are treated and what we're taught about women's roles and what mm-hmm. we're taught about motherhood roles and uh, marriage and relationships and how you should date and and all those types of things. I kind of like took them all into different segments, broke them down and really researched the entire, um, I wanted the full picture of mm-hmm. what the church was now and where did it come from? Because the most common excuse that I always grew up hearing, because this is what members tell each other the whole all the time, is whenever there were uncomfortable things in the church history, we would say, the doctrine is perfect. It's the culture that's imperfect. It's the people that are imperfect. But God's doctrine is perfect. And that was the most common excuse to not delve into anything further. Um, like, oh, well, if the leader said something you know, racist in 1947, and they said that Blacks were cursed, um, and that's why they couldn't have equality in priesthood offices, and they couldn't have access to the eternal covenants that we have in the temples because they were cursed because they were less valiant in the pre-existence. Like mm-hmm. that was something that was a public message in 1947. Um, well, you know, and they would say like, oh, well, those men were imperfect. Those prophets were imperfect. And so because of my stuff with therapy and abusive parents, because that's exactly what my husband's faith my husband's family would say about his mom, whenever we would try and talk to other family members, they would say, oh, your mom's not perfect, but she loves you very much. Oh, yeah, maybe your mom did that. But, you know, she's never done that to me. Stuff like that. And that's gaslighting. And so we realized that that idea was just kind of gaslighting. Um, And so I really delved into that and said, why do we have the culture we have now? If the culture is so toxic that even Mormons know it's toxic, we all gripe about it. We all gripe about Mormon culture, like within Mormonism. We all do. Why is it so toxic? And so everything that was toxic about racism and LGBTQ issues and sexism and and, um, like parent-child dynamics and how that relates to our parents in heaven and our child Mm -hmm. dynamic here. Um, I wanted the root of that. And turns out it's always from the doctrine. It's always from the top <laughs> because culture <laughs> isn't created in a vacuum. Culture yeah. isn't created in a void. It comes because the doctrine itself was toxic. So the members adopted it. Yeah. And even though some positions have gotten a little bit better with LGBTQ or um, with people of color, some positions have gotten a little bit better. Not much, but a little bit. Um, that culture still exists because it wasn't always that way 
for majority of the history of the religion. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, like Joseph Smith and polygamy and like how he would groom minors into being his wives. Like those were all things I never knew about. I didn't know what church leaders said about um, gay people in the 1980s. I didn't know what they said about blacks in the priesthood back in the 60s because that was not my lifetime and Mm -hmm. some of it not even my parents lifetime and so I didn't know those things and the church does change the website they do change the scriptures um Mm -hmm. but because you can always track older versions of websites online to see what they originally used to look for we still have access to what they used to say all the publications that they're they own a, a publishing company called Deseret Books. All of those old books my grandparents used to have in their house that I had access to, who's reading those, what they used to say. Um, and so the more I became familiar with the truth of the doctrines for the bulk of the history of the religion, mm-hmm. and only just maybe in the last 10 years, 15 years, have they kind of started changing culturally towards social justice issues. Um, that's when I was like, the culture's toxic. It's not even true. So it's not healthy and it's not true. Then why am I in it? Because the big selling point for the Mormon religion is that we have the the truth of the restored gospel. Other Christians have part of the truth, but we have the full truth. That's why we have temples. That's why we have eternal marriages. It's why um, we have everlasting covenants after baptism, because for Mormons, it's not just baptism that you need to be saved. You need three other covenants as well um, that you get into adulthood and mm-hmm. then have to maintain a recommend a standards to be worthy of them. And um, so our big selling point is always that we have the restored gospel, that we have the church that Christ had, and then it's taken off the earth and the great apostasy and given back to Joseph Smith in 1830. But um, then I was like, it's not true, though, because if you have the truth and we have prophets, like there were prophets in the Old Testament, we have a quorum of 12 apostles like there were in the New Testament, and they're supposed to talk to God. And I was always told they talk to God in the temple um, and that the we have the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants and the Pearl of Great Price and they're the living scriptures. And we have more canonized scriptures than just the Bible. Because it was progression of God still working through the leaders of the church. And yet they're still campaigning against the equal rights movement back in the 70s. They're still campaigning against um, um, LGBTQ having equal marriage in Hawaii in 1994. They, They campaigned in Utah against Prop 8. They campaigned against the legalization of marijuana in Utah and Arizona. And they're still, they, and then they taught for 150 years that Black people from Africa couldn't have the priesthood, couldn't have ceilings, couldn't have marriages in the temple um, because they were less valiant in the pre existence. And so they couldn't have the fullness of even our own gospel here on the earth. And they taught that for 150 years. They taught that 10 years after the civil rights movement um, before they they gave equal access to those ordinances in our religion. And, and, and then I said this on like a, a Instagram story, but it's not that they weren't, um, it's just the fact that they weren't less racist or they're not, not racist or not mm-hmm. homophobic. 
And so is it God or is it the leaders? Because you can't have it both ways. Are they men of their time? Are they fallen men? Or is God the one who's like, I don't understand the disconnect because you would think if God loves all of his children, they wouldn't be racist for 150 years. They wouldn't. And they had a policy in 20, um, like 2014 saying that um, any gay couples in the church were going to be um, excommunicated. Um, and then they reversed that policy in 2019 because of the outrage and that no children of same-sex couples could be baptized in the church until they were 18 and legal of their own choice. And so it was like, just all of it after that. Mm -hmm. There wasn't just like, oh, the church isn't healthy. It's everything. And then the historicity of the Book of Mormon, and there's no archeological evidence. And and then we taught Native Americans were the descendants of Jewish people um, from the Book of Mormon. And that's not true. And our doctrine for a really long time was that um, indigenous people would have their skin turn white the more righteous that they became in mortality. And there was the whole um, indigenous placement program that the church had where they took indigenous children back in the 60s from um, their own families and adopted them into the into Mormon families through the LDS family services because the church owns their own adoption agency. And wow. just like everything <laughs> after that. And it, yeah. these are all things I didn't know. I didn't right. know this stuff until I started investigating why is the church not healthy? Mm-hmm. Why? That was the surface. Why is the church not healthy? But then I was like, oh my God, like <laughs> the church doesn't even meet my own standards of ethics. The church doesn't even my, meet my own morality. Why would I want to be in it? Yeah, absolutely. It feels like, or it seems like there is always a can of worms that we don't realize we're opening (laughs) until we, until we start to, you know, grind the can opener and things start coming out. Colored flag magic trick. Like you're just like, yeah, okay, that's enough. When does it end? I did not expect all of this. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. That is insane. So that's very, it's so interesting to me. And I love how earlier you said that you don't, you know, you kind of want to call Mormon, the Mormon church a cult, but it, but also kind of not. I mean, I kind of think that I honestly have come to the understanding that any like mass organized religion mm-hmm. can be kind of, can be considered a cult yeah. because at, from my, from my understanding and my research, I, I could be completely wrong on this, but you know, a cult is a group that is led by normally like a single person or like a small group of people mm-hmm. that has a doctrine about it. That's like, says, this is the absolute truth. Yeah. And you have to do X, Y, or Z things in order to accomplish or in order to achieve said truth. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and funny, real quick though, the funny thing about that is, yeah. um, we as Mormons, like, we know that definition. We're very familiar with that definition because people my whole life would tell me, you know, like even at school, like, I heard the Mormon church was a cult. And I'd be like, we're not a cult. Anything's a cult. If you have an organized group of people who believe in the same system of beliefs, then like, yeah, sure, if that's your definition, then we're a cult. <laughs> yeah. And like, we spend so much time convincing other people we're not a cult because we, I've heard that my whole life. Like, we hear yeah. that all the time. 
it almost like desensitized what that meant to us. Right. And but then like when I was investigating the church and stuff a few months ago, I ran into the bite model of behavior control, information control, thought control, and emotion control. And there's a whole categorized system of actions about behavior control is, you know, X, Y, Z, 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 and then information control and thought and emotion. And I categorized what the church did. I, I pulled out that whole spreadsheet and said, here's an example of information control. Here's an example of thought control. And so when I categorized the church and my experiences in the church in the bite model, I was like, yeah, it's a cult. Or or if you don't want to say it's a cult, um, well, they definitely use cult tactics. Mm. And cult tactics meaning like similar to Jonestown, um, yeah. you know, like Jim Jones, those types of cults, the Moonies, um, a lot of the same type of ideas are at play there. Yeah. yeah. Again, it's, it's incredibly intriguing to me because um, the religion has become like the normalized cult. Yeah. It, it's, it's like, um, and, and Mormons are so good at assimilating into public, you know, cause like Jehovah's witnesses, they, they self-isolate. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we have a lot of similarities with Jehovah's witnesses as too, like, with like doctrinally and culturally, we have a lot of similarities and, but Jehovah's witnesses, they practice shunning, social shunning, they self-isolate more, but Mormons don't, we try mm-hmm. to make ourselves look as normal and relatable so that people will want to come to our church. So that we don't scare them away because people think we're a cult. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were always conscious of that as Mormons. <laughs> so we're much, you know, like our religious garments, we wear under our clothes, no yarmulkes or, or things like that to set us apart. So we would assimilate better into society and um, yeah. kind of nefarious when you actually start thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Like, wait Absolutely. a damn minute. <laughs> yeah, it's like, hang on, hold up a minute. That's, that's strange. Yeah. That is so interesting. Um, so kind of on that on that topic, um, earlier you mentioned that, you know, now that you're kind of away from the church and you are not part of that world, but now you're part of like the normal world, quote unquote, yeah. you you feel kind of like an alien. Oh yeah. Um, and because there are certain things that you can't relate to other people on. Um, If, if you're comfortable, I'd love to kind of hear what a couple of those things are. um, And I guess kind of how you are figuring that out. Yeah. Um, So like coming of age milestones for Mormons, that would be of course getting blessed as a baby in the church. Mm -hmm. Um, and then you would have your baptism at eight years old. And so you'd spend the first eight years of your life preparing for baptism, learning about baptism, learning what that covenant means. Um, and then after that, you turn 12 and you enter the youth program um, and young women's and young men's. And um, there you serve. And, and then that's categorized in three different like age groups. And you serve on councils over your peers and um, and then you get to go to the temple um, for the first time and do baptisms for the dead in there. I don't know if you know anything about baptisms for the dead. No. <laughs> <laughs> so that so in the temple, uh, because families are forever um, and only 
um, ordinances that are performed in the temple are actually eternal. So we didn't believe in civil marriages because that's not eternal. It has to be with our specific priesthood. And mm. so baptisms for other Christians don't count according to our theology. Only Mormon baptisms do because we have the priesthood that God had or that um, Jesus Christ had in the New Testament, the same priesthood, right? So we would, we're very big into family history because <laughs> the whole goal of the religion is to unite your family eternally in heaven. And so you, if you have members who are dead, you're supposed to go find them using um, ancestry.com or we have our own ancestry.com in the church and find those records of your family history connected all the way back to God, um, your family tree, which I have family lines in my family and that the work has been done. We have tracked down our family tree all the way back to like Adam, who then goes back to God. It's very intense. And then you perform the saving ordinances, which is baptism, endowments, um, and sealings for those. And so you take the names of the dead person and you bring it to the temple and you perform by proxy those ordinances. So then you would get baptized in the water for and in behalf of that family member. And um, and you would do like 10 baptisms, just dunk, 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 dunk in the big <laughs> baptismal font in the temple. And you get to start doing those things, I think, when you're 12 um, is what it is now. And so once a month, and I would do this in middle school, I would, I would do this in high school. I would go with our, our ward youth, our congregation youth to the temple once a month. And we would do temple night, all the youth. 12 to, to 17, going to do baptisms, and we wore our white jumpsuits and our white underwear, and, um, you know, sit and do the confirmation prayers with the Holy Ghost and do the baptisms, and I loved it. I did. I loved it. If you've ever seen a Mormon temple, they look like castles. They're gorgeous yeah. buildings, very ornate, which is a whole problem I have now, but, um, you know, like, real marble and crystal chandeliers like they're beautiful they're ethereal it feels literally like being in heaven because they're so isolated on the inside um everybody wears white um so it looks like angels everywhere um so i would do those things um and that was a very exciting when you were 12 to be able to get your little recommend card saying that you passed all the, the worthy questions to go into the temple and do baptisms for the dead when you're 16, you're about to start dating. Um, culturally, it's, it's pretty not common to date under 16. So I didn't date until I was 16. And then you're only allowed to do group dates. It's really frowned upon to have boyfriend and girlfriend committed relationships because of purity um, mm-hmm. and very, very strong purity culture. Yeah. And then you turn 18 and you go to BYU. It's pretty expected right on the Mormon tree. You go to a BYU and then you get married. and then. Oh, you take out your endowments for yourself, which is a whole other ordinance ritual that you need to go to heaven and you get a new name and you make handshake promises and specific covenants in the temple during that. And then um, you get sealed to your spouse in the temple as well with that specific wedding, um, which I can't relate to any other weddings. So like all of my, all of my, any other weddings I've gone to for other friends, I can't relate to those weddings. I don't know what that's like. I couldn't wear my own wedding dress when I actually got married. Um, they're not really allowed the temple. Yeah. So I wore a different gown during my actual ceiling. Um, and then the wedding dress was for show. 
for pictures outside for other people to see if they came to a reception. But I didn't actually mm-hmm. wear my wedding dress when I got married. Um, I wore a different outfit. And so like how we planned weddings, I can't relate to that. You can only have Mormons, temple-worthy Mormons be at your wedding. So younger sisters, younger siblings of mine who weren't of age and didn't have their endowments yet, didn't come to my wedding. They didn't see me get married. Any friends I had who came in but weren't worthy didn't get to go to the wedding um, in the temple. So it's very exclusionary. Any family members I had who weren't married, cousins and you know, like, and then their husbands. And but if they had left the church, or I mean, like some of them didn't. I had aunts who weren't active in the church. They they weren't in there with me when we got married. They didn't get to see that. Um, so dating experiences have been jeopardized. Um, I've come out to friends, not really family yet, about being bisexual since I left the church. <laughs> and so, but that's a whole experience I never had. And I only had one boyfriend and I married him because and when I was a Mormon, like that was a good thing. But now I'm like, that was a really bad idea. It's <laughs> like, I've never had. Um, yeah. And um, I would have chosen like a different major in college, like my college experience. I can't relate because you can't drink in Rexburg, Idaho. It's not allowed. There's a curfew that the police that are um, funded by the school, they maintain the school standards. Um, you're not allowed to be out past 11 or you'd be sent home by the police if you were just out and they pulled you over. It's a very small town in Idaho. And that, um, that's the whole town. That's not just the college campus. That's right. But there was, you know, but you're in like a town of like 30,000 local people and then a college mm-hmm. that brings in 40,000 more people. Mm-hmm. And so the, the school and the church have big um, political power in Utah and in Idaho. Um, so the only place you could even find alcohol was at the local Applebee's. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and of course, like nobody drank it. And, um, and my experience at college was very marriage heavy, um, very church heavy. You couldn't attend that university unless you went to church every Sunday, unless you attended your, your church functions. Um, men couldn't have beards. You couldn't wear flip-flops. Um, you couldn't have colored hair. Um, couldn't wear capris. Can't wear shorts. Like tattoos. Very, no tattoos, of course. Um, yeah. And so, yeah. So there's a lot of things even with college that, like, I, I talk with other friends who have gone to like normal colleges, and I pretend like I know what they're talking about, and I don't because right. <laughs> I didn't try alcohol until like three months ago. <laughs> You know, <laughs> I just tried like two weeks ago. <laughs> oh my God. So that like 21 coming of age moment where people kind of like learn their, um, their tolerances and they have that like youth partying phase. I never got it. I went to Mormon college. I got married. I started stable adulthood. And so now my husband and I are trying to like make up for that. We're 26 mm-hmm. and we're like, we don't know what it's like to be drunk because <laughs> we have a child and we have responsibilities and and yeah. that, that freedom that we ever got. So we both of us grieve a lot of freedom of dating. Mm-hmm. We both regret that um, our relationship got was molded by the church. We met at a church function. His Mormon mission was involved in there and that made us commit way faster and way sooner than we should have. Um, 
our doctrine is so marriage focused because you're not allowed to have sex. And so people, you know, like if you know Mormons and have known anything about how they have the three month engagements and they meet and get married by the end of the semester, if you got that ring by spring, that was a social status. Like, yeah, you made it and you, you hit a social status at school and college. Yeah. That's how it was at, um, cause I attended Baylor university, which is mm. a Baptist college by doctrine. Um, and yeah, that was the whole joke is, Oh, you got to get that ring by spring. Yes. Uh, <laughs> is a very, very big thing at Baylor. The meat for market. Sure. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So there's those types of things that just like, we didn't get those. And yeah. You know, and then that leads into like sexuality things. And mm-hmm. um, it's very common for Mormons who leave the church to to practice ethical non-monogamy um, or polyamory or um, explore like any type of different sexuality that they've identified with after leaving the church. Because you can only be straight. That's it. And, uh, and the church still controls what you're allowed to be attracted to within that opposite gender. And so that was my experience. I was... I was told what I was allowed to be attracted to in men. And that's um, so interesting. How so? Yeah. Um, it's part of the like brainwashing type of stuff. So um, we're taught that we can only marry other Mormons because mm-hmm. you can't have eternal, eternal marriages in heaven without the other person being a Mormon. And so it's highly discouraged to date, um, even in high school, like highly discouraged to even go on dates with non-mormons or we call them non-members um and so it was a form of like a little bit of isolation like mm-hmm. oh well now my dating pool is really small of who i can be attracted to i can only be attracted to mormons and the mormons in your school might only be a handful of men or handful right. of boys and then starting with 12 when you enter young women's um every year you make this sheet and it would be um, what to look for in a future spouse. Like you start getting lessons about marriage when you're 12 and what to look for in men that you're interested in or men to marry and who's worthy to be married. And you make your list and you had to prioritize their spiritual attributes more than their physical attributes. And so you'd say like, oh, well, did they serve a mission? That's on my list. And um, how do they treat their mom? And how's their relationship with their family? Excuse me. And um, like, are they a good, are they a worthy priesthood holder? Do they, you know, how basically questions about how is their relationship with the church? Mm. Are they gonna be a good dad? Do they like kids? And then once you have all those on your checklist, maybe then you can focus on, oh, well, maybe I'm attracted to brunettes. (laughs) But, But and then I would still be told, like, don't get hung up on the physical qualities because those don't mean anything. It's the spiritual qualities that are everlasting and um, different prophets throughout time would talk about marriage and dating and courting. And, and they would talk about um, like our prophet Spencer W. Kimball in the 1960s. He talked about divine love and carnal love. And he said, divine love is um, spiritual connection. Carnal love is attraction. And so if you were attracted to someone, you kind of had to like, for me, I repressed it because that wasn't divine love. I'm sorry, right. not divine love, but like divine attraction type of yeah, stuff. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, that's the, in my experience, that's kind of the whole of purity culture, right? Is that mm-hmm. attraction and, and sexual attraction, physical attraction, lust, that's all bad. We don't do yeah. that. 
Yeah. We don't do that here. It's all about, you know, the the romantic, the the emotional connection, the spiritual connection. Yeah. You know, that's that's what's important. But don't even if you have that connection with a person, you shouldn't lust them either. Like, yeah, you and can't have does that leave you with like, oh, I shouldn't be attracted to them because right. I admire them in any way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. For me, it's it led to it led me to be very almost I, I don't identify as asexual, uh, mm-hmm. but it it almost got me to that oh, point in terms of my relationships. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, because I thought I was asexual for like the first few years of our marriage. Mm. Like he thought I was asexual and I've more identified with demisexual, but mm-hmm. that's like what they encourage is that demisexuality, the emotional connection, not the yes. physical spark. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I've had that conversation with my partner as well. Mm-hmm. Um, because there are, you know, we have had conversations like that where he, I feel bad because he's, he's wondering like, is there something I'm not doing correctly? Am I not Am I not performing correct? Like what's, what's happening? And yeah. I just have to tell him like, it's, I promise you, it's not you. I just have to get, I have to heal this within myself, yes. this kind of brainwashing or this kind of seed that was planted in my brain when I was mm-hmm. 12 years old that, that I have to rewire. Um, yeah. And I ended up like having vulvotomia and very like physical reactions um, mm-hmm. in our relationship sexually where I like my body just wouldn't and that was really yeah. hard to overcome um and didn't really overcome until um like I left the church and I started seeing a psychologist to work through sexual mm-hmm. but yeah that was my experience was like repressing everything everything yeah like never mind women but like everything even for men <laughs> yeah <laughs> when I left the church I kind of had to like learn how to not repressed and say like oh attraction is okay and then when I started like working on attraction for men I realized it wasn't just men and Mm -hmm. and uh it was really hard like it's still hard (laughs) yeah no absolutely (laughs) I'm I'm with you because it's it's funny how similar you and I are in that aspect um even though we grew up in completely different religions Mm -hmm. um but the that kind of one of those core doctrines of purity culture and, and uh, sexuality is very much, they're very, very similar because yeah, I'm the same, same exact way. Yeah. Um, as soon as I decided that Christianity was no longer something I wanted to associate myself with and the church is just not for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started doing that work. Like I just mentioned, yeah, I realized that like, it's not just like, I've got attraction all over the place, y'all. <laughs> it's not just guys I don't think anymore. <laughs> I know. And I and like purity culture does transcend a lot of like religions. It's Mormonism, yeah. Christianity, and Islam, and um, like other Judaism. religions. And yeah. yeah, we all, I think we definitely all have our own forms of that puritanical ideas. Um, yeah absolutely absolutely well I could talk to you for hours about this <laughs> it's a big, I, it's a big to, <laughs> I know I might have to bring you on for like a part two or something because we, that would be more like we need to continue talking about it there's a lot to unpack yeah absolutely and I feel like um kind of to your point a little bit like the Mormon church is it's not as isolationist as something like Jehovah's Witnesses but I feel like there's so much about the Mormon church that the public doesn't really know. Um, 
Yes. And and I just I I love smell. Like yeah. <laughs> humans are so uneducated about their own religion. <laughs> Which is so know, fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Well, again, that's why I'm so, so glad that you are so open and just like posting stuff left and right, whatever you discover um, about the church and calling out its racism and its homophobia um, and its political involvement. It's, it's beautiful. I say, keep doing it. I I know that people are going to hound you for it, but it's great. It's really, really wonderful. Um, yeah, if um, if people want to follow you and kind of learn more about the Mormon Church, what um, can you share like your Instagram and Facebook so people can follow you? Um, you can find me on Facebook and Instagram if you search Kelsey Slay. Slay is my maiden name, and that should pop up. I also have a TikTok um, where I post ex-Mormon content specifically. You can also find me under that as Kelsey Slay too. So kind of Amazing. the same all across the board. <laughs> yeah, just Kelsey Slay all across the board. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> ex-Mormon stuff on all of it. (laughs) (laughs) So good. So good. Well, Kelsey, thank you so much for for coming on again and and sharing your story. Um, It's truly inspirational. um, And I know that a lot of people are going to get a lot of of healing, I think, from this this conversation. So... She's like, let me know whenever with like a follow up, and I'll be there. Yes, I'll have you come back on for sure. Hey, you guys, thank you. So much again for listening to this incredible conversation with Kelsey. If you want to follow Kelsey and keep up with all of her ex-Mormon content, you can follow her at her TikTok, her Instagram, or her Facebook. All of them are linked below for you in the show notes. Also, if you loved this episode as much as I did, screenshot this, shout us out on Instagram at the Babble Podcast. And also, it would mean so much to me if you could leave a review as well. It just helps boost the podcast to more people so that they can get in on these amazing conversations too. I love you all so much. Thank you so much again for listening, and we'll see you next time.